So this morning, we get to dive back into Genesis after taking a break for Christmas, and Mike's on a family vacation out in Indiana, so I get to fill in. And once we get to the actual passage that we're talking about, I'm sure you can see why I was like, really, Mike? This, this is the one that I get to do? It'll be fun. So what I actually decided to do was uh, just do some research and see what are people's most common questions about Genesis, because I figured we could just easily clear all that up this morning. It'd be a great sermon. So what actually happened to the Garden of Eden after the fall and after the flood? Did Adam and Eve's children marry each other? How old is the earth actually? Was Noah's rainbow the first rainbow? Did it ever rain before the flood? These are all the questions that everybody wants the answers to. How did Noah fit all the animals in the ark? Were all the animals herbivores before the fall? Were all people vegetarians before the flood? And most importantly, where do dinosaurs fit into creation in the flood? I'm not going to answer any of those because Genesis doesn't answer any of those and we're supposed to be teaching Genesis. So sorry to disappoint. What we are going to talk about, though, is what questions should we be asking when it comes to Genesis? I need to remember to point this back there, even though I want to point it at the screen. Questions to ask. So real quick, I'm going to run through five questions that we actually should ask when we're reading Genesis. And a lot of these actually apply to when we're reading anything in the Bible. And then we'll kind of break each one down and dive a little further into them. So first of all, why did someone write this down? Second, what type of map am I reading? This one's a little bit of an analogy with the Bible being like a set of maps. But what type of map am I reading when I'm reading the Bible? What questions is the passage actually asking? Because if you're anything like me, you want all the answers when you're reading something. You want to know everything about it. But a lot of times especially with the Bible, but really with anything, it's not answering all the questions. So I need to make sure that what I'm getting from it is actually what it's teaching. Which leads into what is the primary teaching? A lot of times, a lot of us have a tendency to read a passage in scripture and be like, okay, let me make the whole list of everything that I can learn from this. And that, that actually ends up being a little bit dangerous. You have to watch out for doing that. So what's the primary teaching? What's that one thing that I'm actually supposed to take away from this? And then finally, how does this fit into the larger story? So we'll talk a little bit about like taking one passage in the Bible, figuring out how to fit it into expanding circles. How does it fit into the, the story right around it, the rest of the book that it's in, the rest of the Old Testament, the entire story, story of humanity, and kind of how to do that. And then as we ask these questions, we're going to specifically ask these questions about the really weird passage that Mike assigned me. So first question, why did someone write this down? And what do I mean when I say that? Well, a lot of times when we read the Bible, I find myself asking, why did God fill in the blank? So maybe, why did God put the tree in the garden to begin with? 
He didn't have to, right? So why did he do that? Why did he allow evil into the world? Why did God reject Cain's offering? Why did God have to destroy the earth with a flood? Why did God tell Abraham to sacrifice his son? What we actually need to do, maybe save that question for the end. And by asking other questions first, we can come up with a much better answer if we're still even asking that question, why did God do whatever? So one of the ways that we do this, one of the ways that we figure out why did someone write this down is by being aware of the historical context that it's in. So when was it written? And you don't have to memorize a bunch of dates. This doesn't have to be a boring history class. Just put yourself in the shoes of the people who were actually there, who were actually hearing these stories, who this was actually written to. So in the case of Genesis, it's one of what we call the books of Moses. So this is what Moses wrote down for the Israelites after they'd come out of Egypt and they're wandering in the desert, in the desert before they go into the promised land. That's a very short, condensed version of all of Exodus. We're good. Um, but when you picture the Israelites in the desert, a lot of us probably picture modern religious Jews in a community in the desert. That's not who we're talking about. These people just came out of 400 years of slavery in Egypt. Chances are most of them at that point were practicing Egyptian paganism. It's usually what happens when one people is enslaved by another as they adopt their religion. So part of what Moses is doing is he's teaching them a new cultural identity. He's teaching them a new way of following God. So once you have that in your mind, and you read this as though you're one of those people and it's being taught to you, it can really change your perspective and give you some really new and good perspectives on it. So, like I was saying, original author and audience, who wrote it, who, did they, who were they writing to, or even who told the story? Because Moses didn't come along until hundreds of years after Noah and Abraham and all of these characters in Genesis that he's writing about. So that was probably passed down orally through you know, oral tradition, father to son, around the campfire or whatever. But Moses wrote it down for a reason, to teach to the Israelites, but somebody passed that story down orally from the beginning too. And then before I ask, what does this mean to me? I have to answer, what did it mean to them? I can't just jump straight to, okay, I read this out of the Bible, how does that apply to me? Because you're really skipping a step if you do that, if you don't answer that question about what it meant to them. And then finally, after we've answered a bunch of those questions, then maybe we come back around to why did God do this? But some pointers on why did someone write this down? Now, today I know it's really easy to write stuff down. People send out hundreds of texts and tweets and Facebook posts and all of that every day. Back then when the Bible was written, it wasn't that easy to write something down. It took more effort. It took someone who was educated and literate and had maybe stone tablets, maybe papyrus scrolls, whatever. It was a lot more effort to write something down. So they're only going to write something down if it's important. What would, why would they think that something would be important? Well, maybe it was something that was a supernatural event, maybe some sort of encounter with God or with an angel. That might be worth writing down. Maybe it was something that they perceived was going to be historically important. 
maybe the concept that they were trying to communicate was really progressive for the time. And we actually see this a lot in the Old Testament where something that we look at today, some of the Old Testament law, and you read it and you're like, that kind of makes me uncomfortable. Like, that's actually not how we should treat women or whoever. We can't apply that today because it would be horrific to go back to some of that Old Testament law. But once we put ourselves in the shoes of those people, we realize, oh, actually, at that time, maybe this was pretty progressive. Maybe they were changing things for the better by making this law. Maybe somebody that didn't have any rights before, maybe somebody who wasn't even treated as a human, now there's something written into law about how we're supposed to treat them. And even though maybe we wouldn't treat them like that today, for the time, maybe it was really progressive. So that's another one of those things that's an answer to why did somebody write this down? And then also, maybe they're just establishing their cultural identity, like we talked about. That's a lot of what Moses was doing while they're wandering in the desert, and he's writing down these first five books of the Bible. And then finally, maybe they're preparing their audience for some, some sort of future event. Maybe they're like, here's what we're looking forward to in our future, and I want my audience to have this perspective going into this situation. We'll see some of that today, too. So I'm going to go ahead and read the passage that we're in today. And you'll see why I kind of raised my eyebrows at Mike when he gave me this one. So where we left off, we had just had Noah built this ark. They had the flood. Everybody but Noah and his family died. They had animals in the ark. They come out of the ark. We have some covenants. We have a rainbow in the sky. And God says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Kind of like he did for Adam and Eve. And that's where we left off before Christmas. So what happened in the rest of Noah's life? Well, the second half of chapter nine here is the rest of what we have recorded about Noah's life. So I'll go ahead and read it to you. If you want to follow along, we're in Genesis 9, starting in verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these people, oh, and from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward to cover the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. And the flood, after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. Right? I'm like, Mike, thanks. <laughs> he gets to go on family vacation. I get to talk about this. And I'll be honest with you, there are a lot of passages in the Bible where I'm still like, I don't get it. Uh, 
This used to be one. I'm going to try and give you some perspective on it today, though, that hopefully will make it make a little more sense. And we'll use some of those questions that we talked about to break it down a little bit, and we'll see if it makes sense. So, it's a weird story. So, we would start with the question, why did Moses write this down? Now, trying to put myself back then when Moses wrote this, or it was read to the Israelites, the first thing that I'm going to think is this wasn't just like you show up to Sunday school and there's like one Bible story that you hear. He probably told them this whole story, starting with Genesis 1 and going through like, here's creation, here's the fall, here's the flood, here's the Tower of Babel, then there was this guy Abraham, to explain to them like, here's how we as Israelites got where we are. So this is a bigger story. So I'm like, okay, if this is a bigger story and I'm hearing it all at once, all of a sudden I'm like, this sounds really familiar. I think I actually just heard a really similar story a few minutes ago. So does everybody remember like Genesis 1, 2, and 3 with creation and fall, the fruit and the tree and the serpent and all that stuff? I read this, I'm like, so creation we have the spirit of God hovering over the deep and we have chaos. In this story, we have the flood and chaos. Then we have a new start for humanity, Adam and Eve, Noah and his family. Then we have a covenant between God and man. We have that happen with Adam and Eve. We have that happen with Noah. Then we have a commandment to be fruitful and multiply. Almost word for word, the same here as it was back when God was talking to Adam and Eve. And then we have Adam in a garden, and we have Noah in a vineyard. And then we have sin coming as the result of the fruit of that garden. And then we have the shame of that sin revealed in the form of nakedness. And then we have the nakedness being covered. And we have the father's son leading to the son's sin. Then we have the sin leading to a curse on their posterity, coming after them. After that, we have ongoing conflict between all of their descendants. I'm like, I, just, I knew I just heard this story a few minutes ago. I don't think that this was on accident that there's such a parallel between these two. And the message after, after the fall of Adam and Eve, the message is that God's still providing a way back to him, a path toward redemption. You can probably apply that same message here. Even after the flood, mankind is still broken. The flood didn't fix everything. The flood didn't restart everything back the way it was in the Garden of Eden. God's still going to provide a path back to himself for broken humanity. And then we have this, this bit about the curse on Canaan. Sometimes when we read the Bible, we have the tendency to think, oh, this is one of the great Bible characters, Noah, so whatever he did was right. Well, this passage doesn't say that he did the right thing by cursing his own children. So maybe we should learn something different from that instead of saying, oh, if somebody wrongs me, I should curse them. Because that's not taught anywhere else in the Bible. Maybe this is a bad thing to put a curse on your family. And then we can see throughout hundreds of years of the Israelites' history following this, they're always in conflict. So 
The other thing with the curse on Canaan and answering that question, why did somebody write this down? The Israelites are out wandering the desert, getting ready to go into, anybody know? Canaan. So Moses is setting them up to say, here are these people that you're gonna be in conflict with. The reason you're gonna be in conflict is because of this broken family and this curse that happened back with Noah. So with that in mind, hold that in your minds because we're gonna put a gigantic pin in that topic. We're gonna cover some other questions and then we'll kind of circle back around to that. And we're gonna go to the next question. What type of map am I reading? Personally, I love maps. I love using maps, I love looking at maps, looking at different kinds of maps. And the analogy that I want you to think of is the Bible's a series of maps. Everybody's used a map, right? Even if it's just on your phone. Don't tell me that, I'm disappointed. There is a saying in cartography, which is study of maps and map making. And it's also a saying that's used in philosophy and science. The saying is the map is not the territory. And what does that mean? What's the most accurate map that you could possibly make of something? There's an ancient Chinese story about this king who wanted the perfect map made of his realm. So he puts all of his people to work on it, gives them all of the money and supplies that they need, tells them to build a perfect map of his realm. And what they come to realize is that the only way to build a perfect map is to build an exact full-scale replica of his realm somewhere else. And then they realize that's not useful because they already have one of those. They don't need a second one. The map's not the territory. Maps are actually useful because things are missing. If a map has everything on it, then it is the territory and it's no longer useful. We have different kinds of maps. Some of them are gonna look very different even if they're a map of the same thing. That doesn't make one map untrue or unreliable, but you have to know what map you're looking at and what it's useful for and use it for that purpose. So for fun, we have maps. Okay, this is not a trick question. What is this a map of? Audience participation, yes. This is a map of the United States of America. However, if I read this map too literally, what am I gonna get wrong? There are only 48 states, we have 50. Also, apparently the United States does not have any roads or cities. Um, apparently Montana is orange. We don't have other countries bordering us to the north or south, and we don't have oceans on our east and west coast, according to this map, right? That's not what this map is intended for. I can't read it like that. I have to read it for what it's intended for. Let's look at another one that's basically this, but it's showing you something else. This one's fun. Here's what the states look like if they're scaled by population. Pretty cool. We live in that tiny, tiny little spot there. <laughs> this is a map of the same thing from the 1600s. Sometimes when the map was created gives you 
perspective on what it's showing. That doesn't make this map inaccurate or untrue. It's a different map. Use it for what it's intended for. Here's another map of the same thing. It's a topographic map, pretty cool. This one's actually not to scale. It's, it's actually stretched way out. If this map was to scale, you could probably barely even feel the highest mountains. This one's really cool. This is all the river drainages in the United States. Shows you just how massive the Mississippi River drainage really is and everything that flows into that river system. So, as you can see, different maps, they look very different. They're all very useful. They don't make each other untrue. So when you're reading the Bible, especially Genesis, ask yourself, what type of map am I reading? So what other maps do you use in your life? Now, the Bible's definitely a good map to use. I guarantee you it's not the only map that you use. How many of you went to school? At least finished third grade? Okay, so all of us have some level of education. Your education's another map that you use. Your family culture and values, that's another map that you use. Maybe, maybe your political opinions, maybe that's another map that you use. Maybe science, technology, engineering, chemistry. These are all maps that we use to explain what's going on around us. So, next question. What questions is the passage actually asking and or answering? A great example of this one is, again, just to go back to the creation story in Genesis 1 and 2. And ask myself, what questions is that asking? Because, again, I want to know everything. When I read something, I want to know every little detail about it, and I have to say, Isaac, back off. What you're reading isn't trying to answer that question, so don't try to ask that question of what you're reading. So let's put ourselves in the shoes of the Israelites out in the desert. Moses is writing this to them. What questions is he trying to answer for them? Keep in mind, these are people prob probably practicing Egyptian paganism. They're probably worshiping the sun god and the moon god and all of the other Egyptian gods. And Moses wants to answer that question for him. Who is the creator? And God says, don't worship the sun. I made the sun. Worship me instead. Don't worship the moon. I made the moon. So you should worship me instead. Don't worship the trees or the animals or the sea or the whales. I made all of those. So worship me instead. So Moses is definitely answering that who question, who created He's also definitely ask, asking and answering the why question, and that leads into the entire story of God's love for humanity. What he's not actually really asking or answering, so we can't necessarily force it into the passage, is exactly when or exactly how he did it. So sometimes we need to be okay with just getting answers to the questions that the writer was actually trying to answer not trying to ask other questions that they didn't intend to answer. Next question, what is the primary teaching? Why is this an important question to ask? And how do you ask it? So if you had to, ask yourself 
When I read this passage, what is the one thing that the author really wants me to remember or to take away or to learn from this passage? Not to make that whole list of things that I could take from it, but one thing that's really important. And that's where you should start. Not that you can't take other things from a passage, but start with that one thing. Avoid basing any of your key beliefs on something that's not the primary teaching of whatever scripture you're reading. If something's important, if something's foundational to our faith, it's going to be in the scripture as a primary teaching. If you don't find it in the scripture as a primary teaching, it's probably either not true or not important. Next, avoid asking the question, what does the Bible say about? And you may think like, why is it wrong to ask what the Bible says about? Fill in the blank. Well, what ends up happening is you can get led down some really weird roads. If you want an example, when you go home, open up Google and type in what does the Bible say about and just see what all of the suggestions are for what people search for. And sometimes it's stuff that the Bible doesn't even talk about. And somebody wants to know, what does the Bible say about this? What does the Bible say about that? And if you approach the Bible that way, what ends up happening is you kind of cherry pick, like, oh, here's a verse here, here's a verse here, here's a verse here. What if I wanted to know, what does the Bible say about towers? I did a little research because I needed some example to give you. And it turns out the conclusions I would come to are that King David thought that God was a tower. And other than that, towers are probably evil because every story that they show up in, there's usually either massive evil or a massacre of some sort or somebody getting thrown off of one. That's probably not a good way to approach the Bible. So avoid asking that question, what does the Bible say about fill in the blank? Instead, when you read a passage, say, what is the author actually trying to get me to remember from this? And then finally, avoid just so stories. One of my favorite authors is Rudyard Kipling. And he has a book called Just So Stories. Has anybody read it? Anybody familiar with it? Thought a few of you would be. And Just So Stories by Rudyard Kipling is a collection of children's bedtime stories that includes stories like How the Elephant Got His Trunk. That's the illustration on the cover there. How the Tiger Got His Stripes. How the Camel Got His Hump. How the Leopard Got His Spots. And usually these end with something that sounds like, and that's how the elephant got his trunk. Then you tell your kid goodnight and they go to sleep because they heard a cool story. Now, if you're reading the Bible, especially in Genesis, and your conclusion from what you're reading sounds to you like a just-so story, it's probably a red flag that you need to back up, read it again, because you're probably taking the wrong thing away from it. So if your conclusion sounds something like, and that's why snakes don't have legs, and that's why humans are naturally afraid of snakes, and that's where agriculture came from. And that's where we got rainbows. And that's why there are so many languages. If your conclusion when you read the story sounds like something like that, you're probably not getting the author's intended teaching from that passage. So, back to Genesis 9. 
What is the primary teaching? He's teaching us about the results of sin. He's teaching us about the brokenness of the world and the need for a savior to come to defeat sin and death and to reconcile us to God. That was what was needed after the fall with Adam and Eve. That's what was still needed after Noah. That's what was still needed until Jesus came to save us from our sins and reconcile us to God. He's also teaching the Israelites, like we talked about, where did, where did we come from? How did we get where we are right now? And where are we going? Setting them up as they're getting ready to move into Canaan and explaining to them, because of this brokenness of mankind, that's why you're going to be in conflict with these people. Now, what happens when we, when we go beyond that primary teaching of the passage? Well, let's talk about doing that with this passage. Is this a passage about the dangers of drunkenness? No, it's not. If we want to learn about the dangers of drunkenness, there are plenty of other places in the Bible that warn us about that. It comes up in the story, it's not the primary teaching. Is this a passage about the importance of modesty? Or how you should be ashamed if somebody sees you naked in the shower? No, that's... It's not what it's about. If you want to talk about modesty, there are other passages in in the Bible that do talk about that, but that's not what this is about. Is it talking about the importance of honoring your parents? That might be one application, but no, that's not what this passage is about. It's It's not the primary teaching. And the worst of all, the most sinister of all, this passage is probably responsible for the single worst, most hideous misinterpretation of Scripture, maybe in all of history. Remember how Noah cursed Canaan and said that he was going to be a servant to his brothers? For hundreds of years in the United States, American Christian theologians used this passage to justify slavery saying the Africans are the descendants of Canaan, therefore it's totally okay because the Bible says that they're supposed to be servants. That's awful. That's wrong. If you point to scripture to justify one people group's treatment of another people group, you're wrong. That's not what the Bible's about. So, Sorry for the downer, (laughs) but that's what happens when we misinterpret scripture. That's how dangerous it can be. Oh, I wanted to go back. No. There we go. So how does this fit into the larger story? First of all, in the context of the narrative, We don't have to go too deep. It's a story about the rest of Noah's life. Like what else happened to him after the flood? Because if you're gonna give a people group their history starting at the beginning of time and saying, here's how we got where we are, it's what happened with the rest of Noah's life. How does it fit into the context of the rest of Genesis? Remember we talked about those parallels between this story 
in the story of the fall. Moses is tying these stories together so that people can remember these stories, so that people can see the brokenness that comes as a result of sin and see that need for the Savior to still come and reconcile us to God. How does it fit into the context of the Old Testament? I guess I just kind of covered that in one broad stroke. This is a story about man's brokenness, how it happens, how it leads to sin, the consequences of that sin, and how we need a savior. So, shifting gears a little bit, three things that you can do that I would challenge you to do. Um, As we get back into Genesis, Mike's gonna continue preaching through Genesis. I would encourage you to just read ahead a little bit in Genesis. Apply some of these questions that we talked about. Think through some of these things. And I think it'll be really meaningful for some of you to do that and then come to Mike's sermon already having read some of it and reflected on it. So that's one challenge. You don't have to do all or any of these. Next challenge is to get involved in some of our Sunday school classes or small groups that go on in in our church community where you really have the opportunity to discuss some of this scripture, dive in a little deeper, and and do that study and ask those questions and spend the time digging into it. And then, since it's New Year's, I couldn't help it, maybe, maybe think about starting a Bible reading plan. I borrowed this one from Reuben this morning before he was up when I came into town. Um, this one's really cool. It's a daily reading Bible. I'm sure there are apps and stuff too if you're more a app type person that'll tell you what you're supposed to read. This one's really cool though because it's designed to have five readings a week so you don't have to do seven days a week. So if you miss a day, it's not a big deal. It's easy to get caught back up. You can take the weekends off five days a week for two years so it breaks it into smaller chunks so you're not trying to get through the whole thing in a year. And I think it's probably about 10 minutes, eight to 10 minutes of reading a day. So if you can spare eight or 10 minutes a day, five days a week, you could actually get through the entire Bible in two years with with this plan. There are others that walk you through in a year. There are others that walk you through the New Testament in a year or the Old Testament. Lots of ways to do it. If you find something that you like, go for it. But that's a challenge for you for the, the new year is if you're not doing any sort of reading plan, maybe think about doing one of those that that helps you just work your way through the Bible. And as you do that, remember to apply some of these questions that we were talking about, about how to actually look at those passages, how to put them in context, what questions to ask about them. And then finally, this was a story about a broken family and the results of that sin and brokenness. And all of us are humans. All of us are broken. I know some of us probably feel like we're more broken than everybody else or broken beyond repair. But the good news with this story is that in the end, God does provide that savior that comes and conquers sin and death and can heal that brokenness. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for today. 
Thank you that we could gather this morning and look at your word. Uh, Thank you that we could praise you through song. And I pray for everybody, uh, everybody here. Pray that you would bless their new year. Um, Bless them as they're spending time with friends and family. In Jesus' name, amen.